Welcome to the New Books Network. It's the Yukon Popcast. I'm Professor Stephen Dyson. And I'm Professor Jeff Dudas. Jeff, today we are going to talk about Olivia Rodrigo. Indeed. Now, Jeff, you and I are both uh, obviously very serious scientists. <laughs> yeah. And so we understand the, the experimental method. And we have done something of an experiment here, right? Like, let's imagine there's a man. Mm. He's handsome. He's sophisticated. Yeah. He's suave and cultured. Let's say he's in the age range of 43 to 44 years old, yeah. that, that famous demographic. Right. And he's never heard of Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah. What would happen if that man was to spend a week listening to Olivia Rodrigo's songs? Yeah. Sadly, we don't have that person with us, but we do have you. Uh, so. Well, I fit the age demographic. Yes. And I'd never heard of Olivia Rodrigo until... Yeah. Very, very true. I'd never heard of this person until yeah. you said, let's do it. Yeah. Like, she's really great. Let's do a yeah. video on her. Um, she has a, a new album out, the album Guts. Yep. Um, so this is, in, in, in some senses, like a reaction video. That's um, right. In that I have heard these songs, the songs on that album... Two or three times of, of the 400 million uh, streams that Vampire has yes. on Spotify, I've contributed, you know, at least three. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know the songs. I haven't sat with the songs long enough to yeah. become like a fan, mm-hmm. to have like a deep connection. But I, but I do have thoughts. Yes. I think you have a, a longer or deeper uh, history. Uh, well, I've been listening to this album almost nonstop since it came out. So yeah. I, I don't know how many streams that amounts to, but I've probably put... 50 cents in her pocket okay. or in the record company's pocket. Sure, she's very uh, grateful. Yes, I'm, indeed. Yeah. Um, but you liked her even before this, I did, this album. I did, but I also think, as we'll talk about maybe, that this album is a pretty big step forward from her okay. first album. Well, I would have no idea because I've listened to Guts, you know, for, yep. for a week and the previous one was uh, Sour. Sour. That I have heard not at all. I did look up um, Driver's License, which yep. was her big kind of breakthrough yep. uh, song, but, but that one totally... Pass me by, mm-hmm. um, uh, Jeff. I think. I mean, I, I don't want to get too much down a down a rabbit hole first, but we're a podcast about popular culture, a yep. podcast about popular culture, yep. um, and I think I think what we've just exposed here is you, you take the idea of studying the popular. Yes, I think a little more seriously than I do. Ah. Where I do the classic sort of um, intellectuals thing of saying I, I'm interested in popular culture, but everything I'm interested yeah. in is sort of high pop and very sort yep. of. Um, uh, I don't want to sound patronizing, obviously, to Olivia Rodrigo, but, mm-hmm. but, but like literate or, yeah. or you know, um, uh, like like art house movies. Yeah. And I say I study popular culture, but they're actually things that appeal to intellectuals. You seem to have some sort of compulsion to study yeah. things that people actually like. Well, I, this is a really interesting way to start, yeah. I think, because I, I do. You're right. I do take the notion of the popular very seriously. I'm very curious and interested in why it is that particular pieces, particular texts become as widely persuasive and understandable and legible to wide audiences as they do. And I probably err maybe a little bit too much in the opposite direction, which is leaning so hard into the popular that I sometimes ignore uh, the the more prestige kinds of yeah. products of, yeah, yeah. Of, of popular culture. So I think it's a good balance, but I do think it's a, I think you're right. I really do believe in the importance of the popular. Yeah. So, so I think it's illustrated. I was just thinking when we talked about what are the next videos we're going to do. Yeah. Um, and I said, 
let's do a 1973 West German television serial, World on a Wire, yeah. about the idea the world is a simulation by yeah. uh, German director Rainer uh, Fassbender. And you said, let's do Olivia Rodrigo's new album. <laughs> <laughs> so we should stop messing around and we should actually okay. uh, talk more about, uh, or actually start talking yeah. about um, the album. We have a three-part framework that we apply yes. to uh, popular culture texts. Um, a first cut or a first part mm -hmm. where we talk about the text on the surface. And in, in mm -hmm. terms of music, that often means um, thinking about the, the lyrics. And I know there's lots of places on guts that we really want to hone in on. Yeah. Um, and examine a second part where we talk about something we call mythologies, which are the sort of social meaning structures that are maybe necessary to decode yep. um, a text. And I have an idea on, on what the the decoding key might be to, to guts, having, as I said, only heard mm -hmm. it a few times. So we'll talk about that. Um, and then a third part where we talk about, uh, we call it critique, mm -hmm. and we talk about the the kind of deepest meanings of the text, or if it's um, offering some sort of normative, um, either in, I suppose it could be endorsement, but more often rejection of a particular yeah. form of life and some other way of being in the world mm -hmm. um, that, that, that maybe is offered as an yeah. alternative. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. So that first cut, that first level of analysis, we often talk when we're watching a visual product of popular culture, we often talk about this is the level where we see plot and plotting, the kinds of things that are that are obvious and that are intended. And I was thinking that for music, it's a little different than that, right? It's unusual, I think, to run across a lot of story songs. There are certain traditions in popular music, country music, for example, or some variants of American folk music that are very much dedicated to the story song form. But mostly, I think what we're looking at here is maybe at the level of the literal, Mm. Right? The kinds of things that do articulate in the domain of the intended, right? This this is, in some way, it's the most obvious cut, right, of what these products or what these songs are about. So I, that might be useful for us to think in terms of the literal. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. so. And <clears throat> being specific about Olivia Rodrigo's mm -hmm. writing, here, here's what I would say, that her lyrical style is, you use the word literal. Yep. I find it very literal. Mm -hmm. I find it very direct. And I, you know, we, we've had this conversation in the past, Jeff, mm -hmm. that that you like pop music, and I'm, you know, n n not coming as, around to it. Not as for yes, I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm on the cusp of liking popular yes. uh, pop music. I'm, uh, you know, it's not it's not my genre mm. necessarily. I'm not sure it's really written for me. Although I know you disagree with this, but as a mm. 44 year old man, it's not clear to me that that I'm the the kind of target demographic. Um, and maybe the, the writing I find um, more accessible, paradoxically, is uh, are things that are a little less literal. Mm. And Olivia Rodrigo is very literal, right? Mm. She she has a feeling. Yep. She, she states the feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then she does a thing and she mm -hmm. she's embarrassed about the thing and she says, I did a thing and now I'm embarrassed about it. Now, that, that sounds like a kind of snobbish damning with faint praise. I don't, I don't mean it necessarily mm. to sound that way, but, but do you accept that that's the... The textual style of the lyrical writing. I think that frequently happens. Okay. I think there is, in, in this album in particular, mm -hmm. in Guts, there is a lot of um, self-flagellation mm -hmm. right, that comes out in a lot of these songs. Um, they do tend to revolve around being put into situations or feeling like one is being put into a situation in which they're forced to react and then being upset or embarrassed or ashamed of the ways in which they have reacted, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that that's correct, that there is a kind of a literal through line throughout the album. Okay. Um, 
Which is not to say that that is unskilled, Mm-mm. right? Like be, being being literal and having it stay just on the right side of um, uh, not being, what's the phrase, like on the nose, not not being too obvious or so obvious that it throws you out of any connection to, mm-hmm. the, to the song. That is a genuine skill. And I, and I do think she's a skilled lyricist. Yes, I think she's a very clever lyricist. And I actually think there are moments in which she... Is she leans so hard into the literal that it 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 rises to the level of actually quite intriguing. Okay. So, for example, I know one of the songs that we both really like is "Ballad of a Homeschooled Girl," mm-hmm. and um, there's that moment at the end of the song where there's those three lines that finish. <laughs> And this is this is a song that we'll talk about that's all about kind of, you know, well, social insecurity. Right. And a sense of anxiety at being in public and interacting with others. And she sings, thought your mom was your wife. OK. Um, called you the wrong name twice. Can't think of a third line. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a kind of a perfect crystallization of the deep anxiety that the song is trying to get across, right? Here's somebody who, even when they're sitting down to express these feelings of awkward, angsty kinds of interactions, even in that moment, you can't think of a good third line, right? And then the song ends with a, you know, a bunch of blah, blah, blahs and ahs. And there are multiple moments where that happens, right? And it also happens on Bad Idea, right? Mm -hmm. Where she's referencing that feeling of you know, kind of being lost in, um, lost in lust, essentially. Mm -hmm. And there, there's no, there are no words that come to it. And it it just becomes blah, blah, blah. ah. So there is this way that the, the literality of some of these songs is so pronounced that it actually becomes its own sort of intriguing form. You know, I I don't know what you think about it. No, I I agree with that. So that, so that kind of, uh, I, I made two uh, uh, faux pas when I was trying to hit on a guy, like yeah. a, you know, and the, and then in relating those faux pas later, I can't I can't think of a third yeah. line. It's a very it's sort of a meta right. thing, right? Because it's it's talking about the, the being very bad at using words, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in a in a form in which she's obviously not bad at using right. words, you know. So it's like both meta or bre- would it be like breaking the fourth? Can you break the fourth wall in a song? Sure. Does that work? Yeah. I okay. Think it, why not? Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I think it's 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 very clever, and um, in, in a songwriter that is both popular and literal. Yeah. To, to remain intrigued and to and to remain on the right side of of not being too on the nose, mm-hmm. you do need the occasional flourish <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or meta moment yeah. or, or real genius encapsulation of something mm. because it gives you f- it it allows you to read the rest of it as deliberately literal not right. clumsily it, literal yes, right because it, right. it's showing there's a there's a different range yeah. or register in which mm-hmm. the the lyricist can operate that's right self-aware yeah. in the literality yes yeah which i think is quite it doesn't sound maybe as we're talking about it here, like it should be that difficult or unusual. But in yeah, fact, try, I, try think, doing it. I think it is quite yeah. skilled. Uh, and I, that's just, I think there's a lot of clever writing that, that she does, especially on Guts. But you see, you see bits and pieces of it on the previous album as mm-hmm. well. But this, is, this might be the most 
some of my most enjoyable moments of just how clever she is. Mm. Yeah. So so she was a homeschooled school mm. girl, right? Ballad of a mm. homeschooled girl. And that, yeah. that's a very interesting song because, I mean, I had one reaction to it and then we discussed it kind of mm -hmm. yesterday as we were preparing for this. And I thought this, this is an odd song, right? Because she's homeschooled, so in a sense it's kind of autobiographical. And the, mm -hmm. the song seemed to me to be about because she's homeschooled, she hasn't had the the day-to-day -day capacity mm -hmm. to generate, to, to sorry, understand how mm -hmm. to interact with people her own age and like mm -hmm. a person she has a crush on or whatever. Yep. And then she goes to a party and she screws mm -hmm. it all up and that's a, you know, but everyone feels like that at parties, right? Even people, or maybe especially people who are in the, the, the supposedly yep. socializing um, environment of school. Yeah, on a think day -day back to our basis. pod on the Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. Right, in which the that first album is entirely that. Right. Right. Yes, is the, the narration of, of an awkward mm -hmm. young man's uh, yeah. attempt to to find a partner yeah. um, in, a, in a in a nightclub, um, and I thought, well, that, that that's then odd, and the, and the song hasn't quite landed because it's it's not really about being a homeschooled girl. It's actually a very universal mm -hmm. experience. But then you made a good point mm -hmm. about Olivia Rodrigo's age and yeah. and what would have been happening during those mm -hmm. formative years. I mean, do you want to? Sure. So those are. She's writing this song, and the song is appearing, and it's being received by an entire generation of young people who were also involuntarily homeschooled, a great many of them, for maybe as many as 18 months or 24 months during the onset of the COVID pandemic. Right. And so what was perhaps originally in a very unusual kind of upbringing and a kind of unusual lack of interaction with others, flesh and blood interaction with others around your age became a quite universal experience for a very particular generation. And we, we see these folks as well in our classes, right? These are the, these are a lot of people who are, who are now freshmen and sophomores in college, um, who were sophomores, juniors, seniors in high school when they were beginning to or forced to experience the world predominantly through a mediation of technology. And so this song that would appear at first blush to be highly specific, highly unusual, turns out not only to have a kind of point of connection, as you say, in the sense of feeling out of place and anxious and unusual about how to interact with others, but it it its literality also becomes common, mm -hmm. right? And because it is about the process of losing the ability to engage with others in education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, social suicide. It's mm -hmm. social suicide. She says this a number of times yeah. in the um, in in Ballad of a Homeschooled Girl. Apparently, mm -hmm. um, you know, this is this is what they call half-assed internet research. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, this is a line from Mean Girls. Do you know Mean Girls? I, I, you know, I know that. Is that the Lindsay Lohan? Yeah. I it's think I know the Tina concept. Fey. I don't believe I've ever seen it, but it's, but I think it's something you've talked about and have seen. And I have seen. It's a very good movie. Okay. It's it's a Tina Fey written movie. Okay. And Tina Fey stars in it as well. But it's it's very good. I, I think it's worth, and it was very popular. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it's worth some some time, but it's. Essentially, it's the story. Lindsay Lohan plays this character who I believe she's a senior in high school and her family moves to a new place. And mm -hmm. so she's sort of trying to engage or to interact with this entirely new context and at a very strange age to have to do so. Yeah. Right. Just one year as a 17 or 18 year old. And 
she kind of gets herself crosswise socially because she's almost involuntarily taken under the wing of the you know this the the kind of the popular girls who are also you know quite mean right and that's kind of their their thing and so the the movie is all about how she tries to navigate the Lindsay Lohan character how she tries to navigate all of these strange interactions of which she is only half-wittingly apart okay and um so I, I don't specific, it's been so long since I've seen the movie. I don't specifically recall the social suicide line, but it's very much it's very much in tune, it seems to me, with the major aesthetic of the song. It's also a gesture, insofar as it is a gesture towards mean girls, it's a gesture towards universality. Yes. The ballad of a homeschooled girl. Right. But it's relying upon relationships and interactions that are derived not from a homeschooled situation. Right, right. And that's, I mean, we've touched on that theme a, a little bit about, you know, reaching for universality yeah. in, in, a, in a lyrical presentation. And, mm-hmm. and it's a very important theme because that is, of course, the trick of pop music mm-hmm. and I mean the trick in, in terms of <laughs> how you, how, how yeah. it's successful but but also the the trick because it is fundamentally a deception right because the the artist is living or is having an existence that is completely atypical that is you know right. one that almost no one else can can share in the world and yet has to convey um universally and, mm-hmm. and in pop music terms very quickly mm-hmm. understood sentiments experiences mm-hmm. and and so on and so forth um, which leads me to mm-hmm. to the next lyric I wanted to yeah. to f- focus in on, which was in the song "Vampire." Mm-hmm. I think in, I think really a seminal song on that record. Not mm-hmm. only because you know I know it was the single and it's mm-hmm. the it's the biggest thing, but but the record seems to me to have sort of two fundamental types of songs. Right? There's like the upbeat banger yep. and the poppy banger, mm-hmm. and then the slow piano yes. ballad. And the thing, the way "Vampire" is the reason "Vampire" is such a fulcrum. Is that it, it, does it does both, both of those things, you know, which which is very clever, and through like mm-hmm. the use of dynamics yeah. and development through the through the song and so forth. Um, in lyrical terms, mm-hmm. um, the lyric "fame fucker" yep. is, I think, a super super important yes. and clever lyric, and it and it instantly struck me as being quite clever mm-hmm. because it gets you over the fundamental problem that Olivia Rodrigo, massively popular, hyper rich mm-hmm. in, in, individual. Um, glo- you know, global superstar mm-hmm. is now going to sing to a set of her contemporaries who are none of those things, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and has to convince them that they have something in yeah. common, right? Mm-hmm. No one has the experience. Almost no one has the experience of being a globally famous superstar. Mm-hmm. Everyone has the experience of like an exploitative relationship, yeah. or or maybe you know, thinking that you were in a relationship. Maybe it was a very short lived relationship that was based upon some genuine human mm-hmm. understanding, but was actually just the other person thought you were hot yeah. or the other person wanted something out or thought you were, e- I don't mm-hmm. know, easy or whatever the terminology mm-hmm. would be. And Olivia Rodrigo is talking about being sort of exploited here for her, for fame. her fame, yeah. you know, which, which I can't relate to, but, it, but you know, you can relate to a disappointing relationship. Yeah. So it takes, I'm stumbling over this, mm-hmm. it takes the very particular mm-hmm. and universalizes it in, in two words. Yes. I mean, that's... Great lyricism. It's great lyricism. There's a couple things to say. So Olivia Rodrigo has said when asked in interviews about that lyric in particular, Mm -hmm. this is the one that she was most nervous about precisely for this reason, that she was afraid that it would be so specific that 
and that it would sort of eliminate the lines of connection with the audience. It would make the song unrecognizable or at least un it would make it so hyper specific to her life that nobody would be able to relate to it. Yeah. And but then she decided to do it anyway. The other thing to say before sort of getting a little deeper into it, because I, I agree, I think it's a striking line and worth spending some time on, is that when she sings this song live in contexts that are like on TV, she changed, and there's a radio cut, a clean radio cut of this song, and she replaces the phrase fame fucker with dream crusher. And it just doesn't work. Yes. It, it really, it's a, to me, it's a massive letdown right. as the listener. I understand why she's doing it. Yeah. Be, um, but it's a massive letdown because that line is so evocative. It's so important to the song. And it seems to me, as you say, to evoke that experience of manipulation and uh, exploitation in such a, a visceral way that... You know, Dream Crusher is not is not even close. Right, it doesn't capture it at all. No, it's nonsense. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a um, a nod to the need to be on yeah. kind of corporate owned uh, media. Yeah. Um, but it, but it completely destroys the meaning of the song. It destroys the meaning of the song, and something we might want to talk about as well. She is. It seems to me that Olivia Rodrigo is a very fluid and accomplished swearer. Mm-hmm. Yes, person. she's very good. And, and, you know, and I don't mean that just for cheap laughs. No. I mean, because we sometimes hear people try to shoehorn in language into popular culture products, whether it be music or novels yeah. or, or whatever, TV shows, in a way that feels inauthentic, in yeah. a way that is clearly designed to kind of bolster their credibility, mm-hmm. right? To make them seem as though something they're not. Her facility with profanity is so, uh, it feels so right. I mean, th- those, every time it shows up, it seems exactly like the right phrase. I'm thinking of the song, Love is Embarrassing. Mm-hmm. She, it, that line is clearly written to require, right? Love is fucking embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Like, the, listen to the way that she sings it. The, the line can't be sung musically without it. It's not a throw-in. It's not something that's designed to make her seem, you know, tougher or, you know, I don't know, more robust in her feelings. It, it is a, it's a true skill, right, in a way that strikes me as um, super important, right, to, to the overall feel of the music and to the messages that are being communicated. Yeah, and, and CrossFit, you know, fuck it, it's fine, is, is also exactly. per- perfectly exactly. It's delivered. Perfect. <laughs> it's perfectly delivered, and it's the exact right line. Yeah. Right? The song doesn't work, essentially, without it. Right. Now, I don't know how she sings that one live. I have not heard, you know, on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how she's replacing that line, but be sure that it will be, whatever she replaces it with will be much worse. Yeah. Because... It's supposed to be there. Right. It's not tacked on or grafted on. Getting back to Vampire, I agree. I think it's – it's still, I think, is the most important and impressive song on an album that I think is full of impressive and important songs. Yeah. Um, the musical dynamism is really something. It's It starts off as a piano ballad. It shifts to 
in the bridge, it's a kind of a jaunty, almost like theater type of feel, Broadway theater type of feel. And then it ends up, you know, as a full on rock song. And at no point does it feel forced or off. And the fame fucker lyric is a throwback, as we've talked about, to a Rolling Stones song called Star Star or, um, you know, colloquially known as in, in a different language. Um, that song, though, is just a straightforward song about a groupie that Mick Jagger is, is missing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not that. So this is it's a reclamation of the idea of manipulation and exploitation but using it in a way that is, as you say, almost shockingly familiar and almost shockingly um, able to connect with a broader audience. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. All right, so we, um, I think, need to need to take a break yes. and move on to our second cut, uh, which we call Mythologies. Okay. And we're back with our second section um, uh, in talking about Olivia uh, Rodrigo, I did, I did wonder, should we, should we play into the wordplay surrounding um, the, the, the album title, Guts? You know, are we, are we examining Olivia Rodrigo's guts? But then, but then I thought everyone has done some version of that wordplay. And also, right. we examine Olivia Rodrigo's guts. Starts to sound a bit weird. It's, or it's a little weird. Like a horror I, movie? Or? It's a little weird. On the other hand, that's part of what she's doing. No, she, right? she has, she has invited, invited Spilling that. her guts. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I do think in terms of the iconography of the album cover, that's it's quite good, because yeah. isn't she like vomiting, well, like stars or, or something? No, like, no, no, it's, she's laying down and I think she's got guts spelled out in Okay, so it's, it's not the album cover, but it's it's definitely some piece of like a poster or something I've seen promoting okay. the album where she's, <laughs> she's vomiting, you know, and it says okay. guts kind of in, I mean, I'll, I'll okay. put it up on the, on the screen, yep. unless I've entirely hallucinated it, in which case that would be a very good piece of promotional work. Her people should call you. Someone should pay. Yeah. Well, pay me. I mean, you know, I don't need the phone call. I just, <laughs> just Venmo me. Um, anyway, this this may have been a, <laughs> a slight detour. In the section on mythologies, we always try to look for um, the underlying structures of meaning that are going to um, help us decode the yeah. text that have maybe been written into the text by the author, um, or or are you know read out of the text mm-hmm. by specific audiences and sometimes they're, they're going to vary by audiences you yeah. know and, and as as two uh, men of a of a particular vintage we, we might find different meanings in yeah. in the things Olivia Rodrigo's saying than than she would herself maybe have necessarily written into there um I wondered Jeff about the idea that this notion of being 20 years old yeah is maybe the underlying uh, social meaning structure that that sort of decodes a lot of what's going on in Guts. And I just wanted to read you two quotes to Mm. kind of set this up a little bit. Um, She was asked kind of, what is this album about? Um, And she said, you know, it's not really about the kind of rocket ride into into being really famous. She says, quote, somehow all of that totally pales in comparison to turning 20. The rest of it feels minuscule, compared to that. And I, so I suppose that's yeah. a very literal <laughs> statement. Maybe yeah. we're not being all that clever in, in yeah. choosing 20 as the as the decoding key to this album. Um, there's also a line by uh, Gia Tolentino, who's a, you know, writes for The New Yorker, and um, in this instance was did a cover story on Olivia Rodrigo for Vogue. Um, 
Giotontino says, uh, Olivia Rodrigo wasn't dwelling in the territory of bubblegum, locador, fairy tales, nor was she aggressively making statements that she was edgy and grown. She'd simply captured what it was like to be 20, an age when you're sometimes blazing with ridiculous lust, thrilled to be seen as beautiful, enraged by other people's expectations. That that seemed to me like a very smart piece of, of analysis. Yeah, I, that sounds correct to me. And as we were talking off camera, it's also pretty unusual as a thing theme of popular culture in a lot of ways, and particularly in pop music, in which, as you were suggesting, there's a lot of kind of looking backwards and being regretful. There's a lot of uh, exploding with teenage ambition and dreams um, and hormones, I suppose, as well. But there's, there's not a lot about at least that we can think of off the top of our heads, that focuses on this transitional period into young adulthood. And I think that Olivia Rodrigo is right, that a remarkable amount of personal growth tends to take place, at least in this era of human history, between those ages of, say, 18 and 20 or 18 and 21. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising how few pop culture explorations of that transition we can think of. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's very interesting, I think, to us as, as college professors because, mm-hmm. of course, we spend a lot of our time with 18 to 22-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what to the... To people who don't spend a lot of time with that demographic mm-hmm. or regarded as one demographic, it might seem like homogenous, right? Yeah. Oh, these are college kids and they're having mm-hmm. a unified experience. But, I, I mean, I, I assume you would agree with me that interacting with a with a first year who's 18 who's just come out of high school is just a fundamentally different experience yeah. than interacting with a junior or a senior mm-hmm. or even really a sophomore yeah and um, you know and and i mean i don't want to say the wrong thing here or, or, or be patronizing or whatever but but the, well just think about how different you were between the sure. ages of 18 That's and the better 21 way to or do 22 yeah, yeah yeah and and 18 i you know i was um it's it's really your initial period outside of the mm-hmm. home um, you know, and you do all sorts of things that you would never dream of doing, yeah. even a year later, yeah. maybe even you know six months later. And and once you get to to twenty, pe- people are certainly I was, and in my experience, people are much more kind of fully formed yeah. um, adult personalities, and a tremendous amount goes on. And and as you say, I think that's true. You get a lot of oh shit, I'm old in music, yeah. <laughs> and, and let me look back and I. I had a dog and the dog died and then I had, you know, and I got divorced and, yeah. you know, I have these regrets. And you get a lot of, yay, let's party, let's, I'm 18 or I'm 16 yeah. and we're going out and it's party in the USA, and, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it's, it's very, very interesting to have Olivia Rodrigo who maybe documented that initial thrill of independence with mm. driver's license yep. that then give a sophomore effort mm-hmm. that, that is much more about um, early adulthood. So, so her great themes, I would say, are romantic betrayal mm. and sort of early adult uncertainty as yeah. refracted through the specifically 20-year-old le- lens. And you're, you're definitely old enough and have been around long enough to mm-hmm. have had very significant relationships. I mean, there are many people who by the age of 20 yeah, might, right. might have found their lifelong relationship yeah. and might have had children and, and all the rest of it. Um, but you certainly will have probably had, you know, a, a very significant mm-hmm. adult relationship. But also your you're still young enough and, and perfectly properly in that in that phase of exploration. And maybe yeah. that's exploration of different 
relationships yep. that, that probably that you've had that very serious relationship sort of fall by the right. wayside. Yeah. And so you've experienced, you know, the quintessential adult things of yep. of deep and genuine love. Yep. You know, but but also that thing kind of falling apart. And this doubles back on the earlier theme of self-flagellation mm-hmm. that we were talking about, mm-hmm. right? The 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 degree to which you you're having all of these experiences that are new and that sort of are in the realm of quasi-independence. And you've got enough of these experiences that somebody who is perceptive and someone who has a personality of, you know, sort of thinking about themselves and how they interact with the world is going to have a lot of, you know, I can't believe I did that. That was so stupid. Why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the love is embarrassing is all about that, right? Love is embarrassing as hell. I can't believe I did this is, you know, look at me making a mess out of myself for the, some, you know, second string loser who nobody cares about. So there's a kind of a self-knowledge that goes along with this self-flagellation that does seem unique to that period of human growth. I think there's probably a reason why, right? It's, it's not the bitter kind of cynical, hardened nostalgia uh, trip that we sometimes hear, nor is it the as you say, the everything is great and we're kind of exploding into the world to take it on, moment of excitement. There's, it's much more measured in a way that feels different and unusual yeah. for, for pop culture. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. And I was, yeah. just as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, there's a specific, a specific reference she makes to one of her parents at one point that, it, that uh. is... That is very definite. I wonder if we're actually. I mean, you gave a nod of recognition. It, yeah. it would be interesting to know if we're if we're going to talk about the same mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> and so what I'm thinking of is um, there's a line in uh, I'm, I'm blocking on it. It's one of the singles where she says, "I am my father's daughter." Get him back. Yes, yeah. and and so maybe I can fix him. Yeah. And my understanding is her dad is a psychotherapist. A yeah. You know, so that's a very knowing. Mm-hmm. So I am my father's daughter is is an interesting um, kind of way to throw that in there because mm-hmm. I am my father's daughter kind of can mean a very general or generic thing. And yep. it can also, I think, in the maybe coming out of the mouth of a of a younger woman mean like a daddy's, daddy's girl or I, I yeah. love daddy so much right. and I, which is a younger sentiment than a mm-hmm. twenty year old would <laughs> yeah. would authentically come up with. Yeah. But but she's old enough to to understand I think both the um the, the, the limits and the cultural expectations or even cliches about and she's psychotherapy. Also, she's also, yeah, that's right. She's, <laughs> yes. she's throwing shade at her father yes. here, which is, a, is also very clever, right? <laughs> Maybe I can fix him. But she she's very obvious that it's a winking. Right? Right, right. She, she knows that she can't. Yes. And, and so she's not, also not saying really he can't either. Her father intention can't either. either. Yeah. <laughs> she, has, she has different yeah, motives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, good. We were thinking of the same yeah. thing. So, oh, good, good news. All right, good. Um, in terms of... Other mythologies or other keys to decoding this, you know, meaning structures in the society that she's she's playing into, or that maybe we're reading out of the the text. I think you wanted to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the the kind of uh, societal perceptions of yeah. young women that show yeah. up in this. Album. Right. I mean, all American bitch, pretty isn't pretty. Those two songs are pretty obviously about the impossible expectations, impossible social expectations that are placed upon young women. And so All American Bitch is this, it's this series of couplets, right? These, this series of, um, uh, of, of paired contradictions, essentially, right? Um, I'm pretty when I cry. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get angry when I, or 
you know, I don't get pissed when I'm angry or, um, and you know, it's this, you know, look at how kind and pretty I am, but also look at how I, I can revel in senseless cruelty and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, so it's this, it is, as you've mentioned, a theme that's not unique mm-hmm. here, right? The, the, the degree to which kind of impossible social standards, particularly around young American women, uh, really shape the lives Right of people, I think probably especially in this age demographic, um, and you know a couple of things. So first of all, it it does seem to be accelerated through technological mediation of modern life, in particular the ubiquity of social media. Right, this is kind of what pretty isn't pretty is all about. It takes these impossible social standards and aesthetic standards, and it uh, like pours jet fuel on them. Right. Um, but I also, you know, what's also interesting is that I, I think we would, I think we would be remiss to assign these kinds of impossible aesthetic standards to only being felt by young women in the United States. Um, we, we talked about this in our pod on, on James Bond. And one of the points that you made is that Daniel Craig's portrayal of Bond is one of the things that makes it so different in the the Bond franchise is that he is now the object of physical desire and fascination. He is the object to which the audience gazes on. And your point was is that that transformation, that physical transformation that Craig underwent is not something that can actually be done in a way that is healthy or in a way that doesn't rely upon significant pharmaceutical help. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Right. So, so yes, that, that, I mean, that is true that, and I, I, I think that, I, I think it is, it is true that in, in one sense there's been a very sort of what you might say progressive shift in the culture, mm-hmm. which is that the, the, the gaze of the camera mm-hmm. or the media, which, which regards only women's bodies as, yeah, you know, uh, object. Uh, yeah, and, and capable mm-hmm. of of supporting desire, and, yeah. and and therefore leads to the kind of reductive portrayal, mm-hmm. and has now been turned in that men's mm-hmm. bodies, in in many ways, are, are mm-hmm. you know, uh, are, are also kind of portrayed in in that way. Um, but many many of much of what is now portrayed, and this was always the case, or has long been the case for women. But what much of what is now portrayed for um, for for men. Is is basically like unachievable. Yeah. And yes, were, were you to suggest that at the age that that the actor Daniel Craig was, <laughs> and his and his training history, mm-hmm. that to undergo a, a transformation that involved putting on what 20, 30 pounds of muscle and zero zero body fat mm-hmm. is a medically interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> thing that mm-hmm. the, the most people will not be able to achieve right. just by like working a bit harder in the yeah. gym and eating some chicken. Yeah. I, I think that would be accurate. And but women have always been subjected to exactly. that kind of unhealthy, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the pressure to conform to standards that are the, the province of genetic outliers often with significant yeah. external intervention mm-hmm. whether that's like photoshopping yeah. or, or you know pharmacological yeah. um you know that, that that's now been been put on men and it was it was unhealthy yeah. for women and it's it's unhealthy for men as well indeed and this again the the mediation of the world through through social media pours jet fuel 
right, yeah. on this trend. And you know, take take for example the the, the trend towards perfect teeth, mm-hmm. right? Which are this is a thing about this, the, this is the thing that's being yeah. said about. I saw this yesterday. Take, take me through that so, a little bit. Um, it, it really has to do, as I understand it, with you know things like. TikTok and Instagram and these kinds of filters, right, in which people are showing off um, and and aspiring towards particular standards of beauty. And one of those standards of beauty has been, aesthetic standards, has been a, a very particular and uniform presentation of one's teeth um, that is essentially not possible um, without <laughs> so suddenly feeling very self-conscious. I mean, I'm British though, so I can pass it off I, as a, it's just a joke. Right? But, but it's, it's there. So the, the industry of, um, the use of veneers, yeah. right. Has become apparently, you know, extremely profitable. Right. And it starts with a lot of Hollywood stars who have changed their, their bone structure quite literally around their teeth. But this is supercharged a, um, a, a lot of you know ordinary people into doing the same thing, and there are ways to deal with. There there are long lasting and effective and safe ways to deal with changing your, you know your your tooth tooth structure. Mm-hmm. But veneers is not actually that. Yeah. Veneers is the quick thing. Um, it requires you know phys- physical manipulation right of existing bone structure in order to replace them with these perfect or. or very particular kind of tooth, yeah, which then has to be replaced. So what over is, what and is over the, again? I mean, I didn't, I didn't yeah. click on this far enough to read it. Is is the argument that she's done this or she hasn't done this? No, and is being criti- criti- criticized for not doing it. The, so, so the idea would be this is this has been a, a trend amongst, okay. uh, you know, it starts kind of with Hollywood actors mm. and is kind of spilled out into, into the world that imagines. You know, a very particular kind of aesthetic standard, and it's not limited to young women. Yeah. Right? Um, so that's kind of you know what we mean. Or, or the other thing that came to mind was the the way in which YouTube has kind of supercharged the male bodybuilding yeah culture, right? yeah, and and set of expectations about you know and a lot of which involves the use of supplements, which are dubiously healthy, right? Dubiously legal sometimes, um, and so. While that theme of impossible social standards and aesthetic standards is, as you say, it's in some ways old hat for young women, not only does that theme get supercharged, it seems to me, in the era of social media, it also sort of spills across a whole variety of demographics Mm. um, in a way that is captured, I think, pretty nicely by... Pretty isn't pretty in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Um, anything else to say in the mythology section? No, we're ready for the third level. The third level. Uh, you know, come with us uh, as we journey into the the, the next dimension <laughs> of analysis. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> and we are back with our third and final section of our analysis of Olivia Rodrigo and her music in Guts primarily and really her as a persona, a yep. pop star, uh, what she means and why. Um, in this final section, Critique, we tend to focus on sort of normative questions. Um, is there a um, critique, criticism, mm-hmm. a, a sort of broadside being fired at some sort of status quo way that things yep. are operating in society? And or is there some alternate vision of 
uh, not just society, but but of self and of how to be in right. the world that is offered um, either explicitly mm-hmm. or, or, or implicitly. And this does actually vary by type of text. I think sure. we've realized that, yeah. that quite often in pop music, it's going to be implicit or you're going to have mm-hmm. to work a little harder to construct the, the, the alternate version of self that might be emerging yeah. from these, yeah, these I, things. I think that's right. And I do think it has to do with form. Yeah. Right? Sometimes the, the most radical critiques uh, that we might find in popular music are going to be oral, A-U-R-A-L, critiques, right? Sound-based rather than text-based. Right. And I I think that can sort of, that can make this category a little different. A little tricky. Yeah. But but we'll do our best. And form, I mean, we should... You made a very good point yesterday that we that we haven't made on the video yet. I'm not sure it fits in this section, yeah. but we, we collectively make so few good points. I, I feel like we can't really really throw. <laughs> Don't this one leave away. them out. Yeah, but you made you made a point about form. Yeah. Yesterday, where where you said there's something very unique goes on in um, which one is it? My brain goes ah. Which song yeah, is that? that's um, bad idea, right? Bad idea, right? Mm-hmm. So the. the that what is going on there, where um, the, the sound ah oh, mm-hmm. is is standing in for her brain, like exactly. functioning. Uh, sorry, uh, shutting off. Exactly. To the point that I, I thought until you said that that the lyric was my brain goes off, and right. it was just sang in that that mm-hmm. thing. But it's actually it's cutting out. Yeah. And that's something that requires the musical form that's to right. transmit that idea, yep. even though the idea is sort of cued and framed mm-hmm. verbally in a way you could do it on a exactly. page. But it doesn't have that impact. If, d- you, if you write down my brain, goes, it, ah. Exactly. And I do think that it makes pop culture analysis different when yeah. it comes to music in a way that um, is, is distinctive. Right? And yeah. there are multiple moments, really, in in the in these songs where that happens. Um it's there are these kind of musical theater moments, right? Because that's the kind of stuff that you you see more often on a stage in musical theater. It seems to me than you do in a movie mm. or certainly in a in a written text. And I don't know that we always have quite figured out. And I mean the royal we, not just you and I, yeah. that we've entirely figured out how to how to depict and analyze music as a form. In that way, yeah. Right? What does it mean, for example? So, Radiohead, for example, has a very particular set of things in mind when they create these sound collages, mm-hmm. right? They they mean to say something very distinctive and unique. It's really hard to render that in language, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. Um, but <laughs> critique. <laughs> We're gonna go forward with it anyway. Yeah, we, yeah. But why, why not give yeah. it a go? Um, Vision of a different way of life. I mean, in, I think we want to make two points mm-hmm. here. One is one is essentially quite a, a negative point. It's it's. I think this, the previous discussion yeah. was actually useful and does yep. fit here. It's not. It's not her fault, mm-hmm. but it's maybe a, a issue of the form that it's it's quite hard to render critiques of society or or you know broad mm-hmm. matters, particularly in, in pop music. And the form is much more readily and and easily deployed as kind of inward gazing or, yeah. or self examination mm-hmm. or, or like interiority. Yes. And she's very very good at yes. that. Yes. You know, but but it does mean that there's not maybe a broader picture mm-hmm. painted. Right. I think that's right, and it does have to do with 
Right. Interiority, right, the paradox, of course, is that the more interior uh, a musician, a songwriter is, the more likely they are connected with a broad audience. Yeah, yeah, true. And so one of the differences we've been talking, sort of lurking in the background a little bit, has been that first Arctic Monkeys album that we talked about. And you made the point off camera that that is certainly a significantly less interior album than Guts is, even though they're describing in many ways similar kinds of experiences. Guts is about the kind of interior reaction to that the Arctic Monkeys album is about the broader context in which those that set of social relationships tends to occur. Yeah. What you had worried about when we talked about the Arctic Monkeys was that it it becomes so specific, right? That, that again, the opposite paradox mm-hmm. that in the attempt to depict in fine grain a whole world, a whole particular social world, that perhaps what would be happening is is that that rendition of the world would be so specific and so linked to particular time and place that people who didn't have experience with that exact thing wouldn't be able to connect or articulate with it. As we talked about it, I think it's broader than the Arctic Monkeys. But it is interesting, right, the way in which connection relies so much more upon interiority than we might imagine and that there's something visceral and all-encompassing about music as a form that allows for that kind of um, connection based upon this uh, almost tyrannical Mm self-examination of the artist. That's the point of connection. Those are the tether points. And I don't know that film does that. I don't know that film can do that, right? I don't know that visual representations can do that, Um, certainly not in the same way. And so there is this kind of um, form and function issue when it comes to music and interpreting music. But it also, it makes this paradox front and center that the the more that, if your desire is to connect with a large audience, I don't know if it's a requirement, but it certainly helps a lot if you're willing to kind of tear yourself apart. Yeah. Show your guts. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think so. I think I think that's a smart point. Um, th- that being said, I, I do think, uh, you know, we, we can hammer together mm-hmm. um, a, a critique or a novel, mm-hmm. I don't know what the phrase would be, value proposition or no- novel idea yep. um, that's being that's being put put out there by mm-hmm. this album. Let me read this line to you. Yeah, okay. Okay, because this is this is a striking line from the song Teenage Dream, mm-hmm. which is the final song on mm-hmm. the album. So this is actually one of the last songs. It seems to me this is very particularly um, organized album. Mm-hmm. Right? So the line is, And when does wide-eyed affection and all good intentions start to not be enough? When will everyone have every reason to call all my bluffs? So what do you think? What is she getting at? There? Yeah, so, so I, f- I found that very interesting, and it, it did sort of... It was very interesting as a last song, because mm-hmm. it made me rethink a lot of things that, mm-hmm. were, that were going on in the album. Um, in, in one sense, that song, certainly in its early parts, mm-hmm. is, is sort of reiterating what we talked about in the mythology section, mm-hmm. right, which is a set of um, expectations on uh, young people, mm-hmm. young, young women in, in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a lot of... Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm patronized for being, uh, you know, when, when will I stop being good for my yeah. age and great for my age and start just being good? Yeah. Which is like a really, pat- you're great for your age, right. very patronizing exactly. thing to say. You know, I'm your teenage dream, which which mm-hmm. sort of actually plays into kind of the, the sexualization, yeah. I think, of, yep. of, of young women. Um, and, and that for me, 
is is now quite an accepted. Maybe it's just the circles I run in, you mm. know, and 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 obviously I don't have these these direct experiences, but that seems to me to be quite accepted about society that that mm. it, it does have a set of um, uh, kind of awful expectations on on young women, and she's not the first mm. person to say that, and she's giving an, yeah. an effective rehearsal of that set of things, but it's but it's not a new thing. Mm-hmm. That's being said, and not even really. And again, this might just be because I move in particular circles. Not, not even a particularly controversial or disputable thing thing to say. Um, and so, you know, at some point, you're like, I get that and I accept that, and I think all all of that is true. But, but w- is there a new mm-hmm. or radical or different thing that's being said here? Mm-hmm. Not because not everyone needs to do that, but but in, from the standpoint of critique of what yeah. we're looking for, maybe in this third section. And I think what Teenage Dream does, and in particular in the in the lines that you you read, um, that you read out, what what that song does is offer a a fuller picture of a young woman who's been subject to these expectations, mm-hmm. and it doesn't just stop with "woes me, I'm I'm subject to yeah. unreasonable societal expectations." There's also in those lines, but I will soon, maybe sooner than I than I think. Be older, mm-hmm. right? And and also, I have agency here. I'm not, I'm not just a young female victim of society, right? Yeah. I'm I'm someone who um, people will have reason to call out all my bluffs. Like I do uh-huh. a lot of things that are just bluffs and bullshit, yeah. And and that are maybe playing on some yeah. advantages that I mm-hmm. that I might have with with my age and mm-hmm. and so forth. And I'm not always going to have them. Or, or yeah. my tricks are going to. I mean, yeah. that sounds pejorative, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. My my performances are going to get old. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I'm I'm a I'm an adult who's moving in the world and who is making mistakes and doing things that are that are not purely um, unimpeachable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not always a victim. I'm a, yep. a I'm an agent. And I'm I'm doing things that are not that are not unimpeachable. And I know it. Right. <laughs> and I'm choosing to do them anyway. Mm-hmm. You know. And th- this seems to be a, to me to be a much fuller picture yeah. of. A, a, a young adult woman mm-hmm. than society puts unreasonable expectations on right. on me, which which to be clear, and I hope I have been, mm-hmm. I am not saying is untrue yeah. or an unreasonable thing to say. I'm saying what, what what I think is going on is actually a much more interesting and, yeah. and even radical reclaiming of um, female agency or, yeah. or young young person's yeah. agency. There's also, in addition to all that, it just strikes me now, there's this recurring line in that song, Teenage Dream, where she sings, they all say that it gets better, but what if I don't? Which yeah. not, I think, not what if it doesn't. Right, but what if, what if I, I don't? don't right? <laughs> Which is simultaneously, it seems to me, connects with this theme that, that you've been talking about, but it's also in a certain way, it's a very clever line about creative people. Yeah. And certainly one, you know... I mean, I will go to the grave insisting that that acts of scholarship are creative acts, and I yep. know that you know that sometimes, you know, writing scholarly analyses or or doing this kind of thing is not seen as creative in in character, but in fact it is. It's creative in mm-hmm. in a great many of the same ways that more popular arts are or entertainment arts are, and I think it's not unusual to produce something right that you're maybe quite proud of. And then what becomes the gnawing after effect of that is well that might that might be it that was it that was that the was top. I don't see how I'm doing better than that. Well, right? and I was thinking this driving in this morning, listening to guts, and I was like, she's 
she's already by having one song that anyone's ever heard of, she's mm-hmm. already in the top zero point zero 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 of whatever. Not only of humans, but of of musicians, yeah. of people who try. Yeah. And then to have a hit album mm-hmm. puts you in, you know, mm-hmm. a, a even rarefied company. Yeah. To have two, yeah. Like, so so it could be that by the age of twenty, mm-hmm. her her creative and artistic peaks yeah. have have been reached. Or certainly, you know, I'm I'm sure that that a highly creative and artistic person can go on being creative mm-hmm. and, and create art. And maybe it becomes more meaningful or even more artistically um, sort of important or significant or complex. But of course, her particular realm of things is the creative yeah. that is hugely popular exactly. to almost bring this full circle mm-hmm. and how many people really do that over an extended period of time like it's it's very difficult yep. and most people who've done it are either like you know well or maybe are both like super geniuses mm-hmm. and also co- constantly reinvent themselves and so in yep. a sense they're killing earlier versions yep. of themselves in order to have that first flush of creativity That's right. and now i'm this Taylor mm-hmm. or Madonna mm-hmm. or, or whoever it is. Yeah. Um, and and in a sense, that must be quite sort of scary. And you, you, yeah. you would imagine she's sort of worried about that. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, she's been on record a lot talking about how anxious she was about the second album. Yeah. Because the pop world is littered. I mean, first of all, it's littered with, you know, the, the one and done, yeah. know, the, the one hit wonders. Right. It's also littered with with artists and bands that have one really popular album and then the next one is a complete flop and yep. failure and that's it they're done second so, album slump second album slump they're done at the age of 19 or 20 right and so she talks about this being sort of one of those formative experiences for her is that just the anxiety about I don't know that I can do this again in a way that people will respond to yeah right um to me, the irony is, is whatever that anxiety was, it, it's pushed her well beyond where she was with the first album. and But it remains, in some ways, the curse of the creative person. Yeah. Right? How do you keep doing this? Particularly on an album like Guts, where you've, you've mined... It's not easy, right, to go in and dig out your your soul and then pour it out. No, no, no. And, so, and, and, and however you do that, yeah, yeah. right? In whatever form. It's not and it's, easy and, to do and, that. She, and she did it and this is this is this is sort of the point I was trying to make. She did it not only in a, a sort of mawkish like I am a person yeah. who is acted upon and everything is very unfair for me mm-hmm. type of way. Well all, all of which I'm sure is true and, and leads to authentic feelings. Yeah. But also in a in a a, a, a a very introspective way of I have faults too. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think of the the kind of lustful um, lines again. Again, is it is it like uh, getting back where she's mm-hmm. no, it's bad idea, right? Yeah. Where she where where her brain turns off yeah. purely out of lust. And yeah. the, the the young, I'm not sure if she ever genders the the, the person, but the the, the young romantic. Um, Maybe she just say guy at some point. Mm. That so let so let's assume you know yeah. the, the the young man in this scenario is. Is objectified and, yep. and, and is the is the is almost unapologetically the object of mm-hmm. um, of lust, yep. which kind of complexifies this society has unreasonable yeah. expectations on on young women mm-hmm. thing in it in a way that, that reads to me like authentic yeah. and interesting, but but also relatively unusual mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, yep. You know, um, in a way that that I think perhaps is offering. An alternate view of how to be twenty years old, mm-hmm. 
or, or legitimizing and or, or, or you know yeah. I'm, I'm calling forth an, an alternate view on how to be 20 years old yeah. but the truth is like like all acts of interpretation and, <laughs> and analysis what the hell do I know I'm not 20 years old I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a shock you. I'm, but not you tw- were. I'm not a 20 year old woman but but you, but you were and I, this is probably a good yes. place for us to finish yeah. you you have mentioned at various points both off camera and earlier that you were not really the demographic right for this music no I don't think it's targeted at me Perhaps not, mm-hmm. but I find a lot of resonance myself. Part of it is is musical, right? Yeah. That the a lot of the touchstones that Olivia Rodrigo is going for on this album are these are the bands and the sounds that when I was twenty, when I was her age, yeah. this is what I was listening to. We, we've gone to the end without talking about yeah. the the thing that's often brought up, which is her influences are actually quite different from other Ex- uh, pop contemporaries. Very different, yeah. right? Whereas, you know, whereas a lot of pop stars look to other pop stars, to previous pop stars, um, and find themselves most influenced by them, she is looking on one hand at singer-songwriters, people like Carol King and Paul Simon. And on the other hand, like she's really into alternative rock, yeah. right? N- late 90s and early 2000s alternative rock. And we get this kind of frequently seamless melding of those things, which for me anyway is is very attractive to listen to. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, for one, as we've talked about, I miss hearing actual instruments on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to be able to listen to extremely well-crafted melodies, pretty extraordinary vocal range, and, and not just in terms of like, you know, what notes can you hit, but like how do you deliver, right, vocally. And you combine those things with loud guitars and crashing drums, and you've basically come up with my platonic ideal of, of what I of I can't imagine anything better to listen to on the radio. Yeah. And so I do think that there's a th- this does connect with me in a lot of ways. And I may not be the target demographic, but I, I mean I I think it's got I mean it hits me in all of the places where I will, you know, musically I I want to connect. Yeah. I think maybe one difference between us is you, you feel a need to turn on the radio. <laughs> Well, again, I've talked about this, I think, in the Taylor Swift pod, that I did not listen to the radio for years and years. Mm -hmm. But as my children got older, my youngest son in particular, he really likes listening to the radio. And so you start to to hear this stuff. And I know you think that's not going to happen, but don't be surprised. When your son gets older. Well, I will tell you, already my my two-year-old recognizes Olivia Rodrigo songs because I've been, you Mm -hmm. know, playing them, but he can recognize individual songs. And each time one, you know, I have guts on in the car Mm -hmm. when I'm driving to to and from daycare, and each time one finishes, he says, find another Rigo. Yeah. He wants to hear more. So maybe that's the, you know, maybe that's the final judgment. That's the final judgment. All right. So Uh, do, do you think we need to say anything anymore? No. Yeah. Fuck it, it's fine. Yeah.